He had everything. Again, you can hear about that from last week's message. And so we come to the same place in our lives where we have to ask ourselves, what are we leaning on? What is our alleluia really? Is our alleluia something that will hold up when the bottom of life falls out? Can we lean on it? Is it a cloud that if we put our weight on it, we just go right through it? And that is really what Solomon is talking about all the way through as we read about his personal God-inspired journal in Ecclesiastes. And in chapter 7, we're going to be taking a look at more of this, and we're going to see that as he starts to think about life and he starts to talk about life, he realizes that there are moments in life where the bottom does drop out. And the alleluia, if it's not the right one, doesn't hold life. That's the reason we're talking about living well under the sun, with the sun. And now Solomon didn't have that benefit that you and I have. Our relationship, our connection to God comes from what Christ did for us. He offered his life for us, he rose again, and now you and I can live a connected life with God because of God's sacrifice. And Solomon didn't have that privilege, but you and I can find ourselves also leaning on other things. And it really doesn't matter who we are. It doesn't matter if we've been a Christ follower for what seems like forever, uh, or we have just testing the waters to see if faith has anything for us, if, if that could be our alleluia, or if we've just crossed the line, uh, or if we're a skeptic, totally skeptic. We still are looking for something to put the weight of our life in. And Solomon is a, is a great example of that. And so we're either hoping for it, we're either planning for it, uh, we've either feeling it, or we've, uh, in a sense, given up on it when it comes to that alleluia. Now, in Ecclesiastes 7, he's going to talk about something that helps us determine how trustworthy that alleluia is that we have. And so the on-ramp we're going to start with to help us determine the soundness of our alleluia comes in this first question was, who was your favorite teacher growing up? Can you, can you think of that favorite teacher? Does it, does it come like this or no teachers? What, what does anyone, you know, there, are, there is uh, Kim Ray here, so, you know, that's a, Kim Ray, I record, you know, you can start doing that kind of thing, but, uh, but yeah, <laughs> so anyway, but you can think, can you think of that favorite teacher? Now hold that thought and think about that favorite teacher, what made them your favorite teacher, and let's have Leave It to Beaver, how many who know who Leave It to Beaver is? Again, a lot of you don't, you're missing out, this guy, this kid could step into it in big ways and gets to the other side in less than 22 minutes. So, but anyway, Leave It to Beaver, here we go. Leave It to Beaver. Boy, wait till Beaver sees this. in here, Beaver. Boy, Woody, I never thought Miss Landers would go and do anything like this. It's right there in the printing. They announced to be thrown and everything. Yeah, I guess that's even worse than being a fiasche. You know, 
When my brother got married, they had a picture in the paper of his wife, just like that. Only she was wearing a whole lace dress that cost $200. $200? Yeah. And my mother said it would have been better to put the money towards furniture. <laughs> you know, Whitey, after Miss Landers gets married and then comes and starts teaching our class, I don't think I can do it. Do what? Call her Mrs. Brittingham. How come? Well, a teacher should not be a missus. Boy, Whitey, all these years I've been thinking teachers were something special. Well, now they turn out to be nothing but parents. Yeah, well, when you were my age, didn't stuff like that ever happen to you? No, I suppose so. I guess when you get grown up, you forget about all those dumb things that happened when you were a kid. Well, I hope when I'm grown up, I won't forget about this. Sure you'll forget about it. In a couple of years, you'll go to high school, and then you go to college, you meet a whole bunch of girls. You'll probably marry one, and you'll have a whole bunch of kids and a job and everything. If you met Miss Landers on the street, she'd be an old lady maybe 40 years old and probably wouldn't even recognize her. See, Wally, what you going to say that for? Can't you let me get over the weekend before you mess up my whole life? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if it was just with girls but or with boys, but uh, uh, I can remember, you know, having a crush on my, my, one of my teachers. And uh, I remember Andrea Bornagorio, I've mentioned her before, and I came home for my first day of kindergarten, uh, walked in the door, and told my mother that I was in love. And then I said, then she said, with who? <laughs> and I said, Mrs. Bornagorio. And she was beautiful. Her and her husband lived on our street. I was still okay with the fact that she was married because, because her husband had one of these. And he would take me for a ride in it every once in a while. So Mr. Bornegorio was okay. But I remember, uh, in a sense, having that crush on her. You see, a lot of times when we think about the teachers in our lives, we think of them with fondness, with kindness. They made a difference in our life somehow. Maybe it was just reassuring. In kindergarten, that was a big deal. And she just was so welcoming, and she would just melt my heart when I would see her. And she'd come in and talk to me and ask me questions and listen to my little stupid stories. And, but now you guys all listen to the stories. So anyway, so, but uh, she listened to the stories and all of that kind of a thing. And, uh, you know, I, and she just had a fond place in my heart. So usually when you and I think of our teachers, we think of fondness towards them. And what's interesting is when Solomon jumps into chapter 7, um, he actually teaches us that our alleluia holds up when we find that a part of our teaching, a part of our growth as, uh, as human beings is this idea of grief. And what he actually proposes is that grief is actually one of our best teachers. And most of us would not lean into that. Most of us don't look towards that. But those of us who have gone through seasons of heaviness, hurtfulness, can identify often that we've learned something from our grief. Now, this being Memorial Day weekend, probably a number of us uh, remember uh, somebody that went away into the service and actually didn't come back. 
And when um, Cindy and I would gather with her side of the family, uh, often there would be this one little moment on Memorial Day weekend where my mother-in-law, Barbara, would remember her brother, Richard. And Richard went to the Korean War. And in 1953, June 29th, they got news that he wouldn't be coming home. And there would always be this, this, this sense of grief. And, um, you know, this actually, I put this on here on purpose, this actually is not a picture of him. Because the grief was so heavy on my mother-in-law's parents that they took every picture, every commendation that he received in the service and got rid of them. It was just too painful for them. And my mother-in-law, I think, was a sophomore in high school as this all was unfolding. And so even this morning, I was uh, texting her back and forth early. She's up early, too, and just talking a little bit more about this. And uh, th this, this was a heavy grief in her parents' life, in her life, but in their situation, it just, it, it just, they just could not bear up underneath. And it never ended up, in a sense, teaching them anything. Now, my mother-in-law on, on the other side uh, found out that it, it did teach her something. It taught her to value. You heard it in some of the things. You heard it in some of the comments. You'll hear it in some of the parades. You'll hear it in some of the remarks tomorrow at the cemetery that one of the ways we remember and we celebrate these servicemen and women that have given the ultimate uh, cost for their, with their lives is that they would want us not to forget them, but they would want us to embrace and celebrate life, to, to enjoy life to enjoy the freedoms they gave their life for. And so that, in a sense, is a lesson of grief, that we can take our griefs and find that over time, not instantaneously, someone's suffering, the worst thing you can ever go up to them and go, hey, this grief's going to teach you something. Sometimes well-meaning people do that. Maybe you've experienced that. I can remember when, when Cindy and I, uh, we were expecting our first child in, in the pregnancy. Uh, did, she had a miscarriage, and uh, people coming up and kind of giving us that. They, they were trying to be helpful, but they really weren't helpful, but we understood that. So, so taking this grief. So, so when we think about grief and we think about it teaching us something, not being our fondest teacher, actually not being a teacher we really like, but still being a teacher, uh, we really got to start from this position of looking at things from an opposite perspective. And, and really, that really is counterculture. It's, it's counter from the way that uh, uh, we, we, just, we just think. I mean, thinking about... Um, Cindy's would have been Cindy's uncle at 21, not coming back, and and to try to pull any meaning out of that, it, it's just it's just really countercultural. But Solomon, towards the end of his life, says, you know, I've experienced grief, and I've realized that it can teach us something. It can teach us something. Now, in chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes, it's a little, there's all these random thoughts, and they can be tied together, but they're, they're random thoughts, almost like you find in Proverbs. So, 7 starts off with this little phrase, chapter 1. Uh, we're using the New Living Translation for most of our 
uh, readings this morning. A good reputation is more, more valuable than costly perfume. Okay, that, that makes sense. It makes sense to me. Uh, for some people, though, costly perfume could be very helpful, you know, in their life and those kinds of things. But for the most part, it, it's a good reputation is worth more. And then he talks about this. He says, "In the day you die is better than the day you are born." And you go, "What in the world is he starting to talk about?" You see, he's starting to give contrasts. And the contrast he's giving here is the day you die is better than the day you're born. And that just does not make sense to us. But if you've been at some of the celebrations of life we've heard, and as we've heard the meanings of these lives, as we've heard, heard the depth of what was going on, how they made a difference, the people they touched, all of a sudden you realize that the day you're born, there's really not much perspective. Towards the end of your life, there's lots of perspective. And there's a lesson of that. Um, I spend a lot of time with families going through this kind of process. Uh, probably more than the average person. And I always never want to lose sight of the idea of reflecting. And, and, I, and it weighs on me. Weighs on me in a right way, I think, I hope. Am I using my days well? Am I leveraging my life well? What am I doing with it? And that means doesn't mean we don't enjoy life. We've talked about that all through this series. But this idea of embracing the moment is a part of that. Am I slowing down uh, to, to think about these things? And then here comes the next thought, which is very odd for us, is starting with your funeral and working backwards. Unconventional thinking. Starting at your funeral and working backwards. What? Not because you want to be boastful and not because you're arrogant or egotistical, but, but what do you want people to not necessarily say, but think and understand about your life when it's over? And if you can start there and start working backwards, you know where you're going. First part of this series was all this idea of living well in light of the end. If we start out that way, all of a sudden it might change our actions. Because if we know what our destination is, as we know where we're going, then we will live differently in theory. And again, that is one of the benefits of going to a celebration of life because you can actually ask yourself, how am I doing? What can I learn? How can I, especially when you celebrate a life that you're really celebrating, how can I reflect some of the lessons of this person that's gone on before me? Or do I just let it go? Solomon says, again, it's very odd to us, it's, Better to spend your time at funerals than at parties. After all, everyone dies, so the living should take this to heart. And as we get into this and we talk about this, is not a fun subject to talk about. Welcome to Seneca Community Church, where we give feel-good messages. But months ago, when I was planning out the series, this chapter was this Sunday. 
And I don't like to blame God, but I'd like to say God's leading in what's being communicated. But the idea here is that a lot of us like the parties where our brains are not engaged. And again, there needs to be balance in all kinds of things. But the idea is, do we take this to heart? Do we understand? Verse 7, a wise person thinks a lot about death, while a fool, a foolish person, thinks only about having a good time. And the question that's obvious from there is, what do you think most about? What do you think about? Do you think about how I'm living my life, how I'm using my life? And it's so, I can't say the word, collumative, collumative, nice and loud. Yes, thank you. It's so, you know, it's, it's one day at a time, compounded interest. It just, you know, it just, you can't change it in one in day and live one, in, you, every day, and it compounds on that. So taking stock of this for Solomon is very important to him. And, you know, and I'm sure he wished he had taken stock of this really when he was in the middle of his life when he wrote Proverbs. Uh, it doesn't seem like he was, because, again, he was looking at life and leaning into things. His hallelujahs really didn't, didn't measure up. Now, when we start thinking about these kinds of things, obviously there's a lot of emotion. And sometimes in church circles, we're, we're taught to uh, suppress our emotions, to pretend they don't exist, especially the more expressive ones, uh, anger and, and, and grief and all of these kinds of things. But we'll even see that Jesus himself, that one verse, that shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. So Jesus was not himself devoid of emotions. He would express them, and they expressed something. So grief, any kind of emotion, not letting it control you, but taking stock of it, what does this mean? For Jesus' instance, it meant that he loved Lazarus. He loved, he loved, he, he loved those also who were grieving. This was an emotion. Emotions are good. So don't stuff them. Uh, whenever you feel an emotion, whatever it is, try to let it be a warning light on the dashboard of your life. Uh, sometimes I have to ask myself, and I've shared with this before, sometimes the emotional response is not fitting to what's going on. And then I have to ask, why is this instance over here getting this emotional response? Something else is going on in my heart. And instead of ignoring it and pretending it doesn't exist, I need to think about it. And often it will tell me about something that's in my heart. So emotions are a good thing. God wired you with emotions. So take inventory of them, understand them, and grief is one of those emotions. You probably have already gotten this, and this isn't the end of the message. I know I wish it was in some ways, but the bottom line is this, is grief can be life's best teacher if we become willing to learn from it. Learn from it. See what it says about our life. And again, this just comes out of the blue. We wouldn't think this. No one, none of us would welcome grief into our life, welcome pain into our life. But when it comes, because we live on the planet Earth, which is broken, we might as well try to take some inventory from it.
Now, Rick Warren gives uh, six stages of grief, and somehow I totally messed it up on your message guide, because if you notice really quickly, you've only got five there, and they're all mixed up, so just kind of you can just kind of ignore those for the most part. Uh, the blanks will be filled in by this afternoon. You can download it to find what I'm going to put up on the screen here. But Rick Warren, as you know, went through a major loss. His son uh, passed away, and uh, he really had to wrestle with this, and he came up with uh, these six stages. And really, it is a process. This is not something that's automatic. It is a process. It takes time and lots of time. And for most of our heavy, heavy griefs, it's not about getting over it. It's getting through it. It's, it's being changed by it. I love Rick and Kay Warren's transparency. Their son was 27 years old, and they said that the old Rick and Kay Warren will never exist again. They've been changed. They've been changed. So the worst thing you could say to them is you just, you know, give, get old. No, no, they are now different. So he lists these stages. Uh, first of all, he says there's the shock when your world falls apart. It's just, and, and this shock is, isn't, isn't a shock that's for like 10 minutes, one day. Uh, some of us live in that shock for months, for months, for years. Uh, talking to my mother-in-law, if I had been in, not just texting, if we had been face-to-face, she would have been right back in, the world has fallen apart and that is like 66 years ago. So there is a shock that accompanies grief in the process. Obviously, there's this sorrow. Your heart is breaking, and you don't know if you can even take a breath. That's a part of this process. When there isn't a sorrow when there isn't an ache, when there isn't these moments where you can hardly take a breath, you, you, you can't bypass this stuff. Every once in a while you'll meet somebody and uh, sometimes they're us and there's something, some grief, it could be a different level of intensity, a different hurt, but it's there and, and, and we've tried to bypass it and all of a sudden it kind of erupts in these weird ways. Sometimes it doesn't erupt uh, externally. Sometimes we're just, we're just all of a sudden back down to just depressed, low, because it's still, we haven't walked through the process. Struggle. When you just don't understand, you can verbalize it, there's no answer to this grief. Grief could be, why did they treat me that way? Why did my spouse act that way to me? Why did they leave? Why did my kid act that way? I mean, I was doing everything. I wasn't perfect. I was doing everything right. I was on the right path. I, I don't understand. And, and the honest truth is there are some things we will never understand. We'll never be able to get our mind around. Certainly not ever get our heart around it. And then for the Christ follower, there gets to be this place where we have to surrender. Uh, and it's, it's how we start to experience peace. 
Um, obviously, we could spend a Sunday on every single one of these. Some of us are familiar with Paul talking about the peace that transcends all understanding. I don't understand it. That's the reason it transcends all understanding. And some of us have been in those situations where the grief is heavy, unbearable. We come to terms with the fact we don't understand it. Uh, even when we do understand it, sometimes the explanation just doesn't take the pain away. I could go right back to, to look at, uh, you know, let's go back to when Cindy and I, you know, we've been married, you know, five, well, we've married like six, seven years and it waited on purpose, but now we were ready to have a baby and it didn't happen. And the doctor could come in and tell us all the technical reasons why, give us a thorough, scientific, exact explanation and surprise surprise the pain didn't go away if you're waiting for an explanation it might help get your mind around it but it doesn't like settle your heart there's a moment where you have to surrender and say god i don't get it i need that peace that transcends all understanding and you've met some people like that. You've met some people that have gone through unbelievable tragedy. And they have a peace that transcends all understanding. It's not Pollyanna. It's not make-believe. It, it, it's sincere. It's genuine. I could think of um, Elizabeth Elliot. Some of you know that name. Lost her husband. Oh, 25 years old, trying to do God's work. I could think of Corey Ten Boom, Corey Ten Booth, Boom Boom, but yes, thank you. In a concentration camp, loses her family, all the horrible things that go on, yet somehow she had a peace that transcended all understanding. I can't give you, here are five steps, boop, 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 check them off, you're okay. It doesn't work that way. It's a process. There's a, a wrestling. And then there's this real spiritual word, sanctification, that Rick Warren uses. And really this is the idea of how God turns bad to good. He works something inside us and we change. And all of a sudden we have a, a different outlook on life. It affects us. Those names I just mentioned were empowered by their tragedy. Their tragedy opened up the doorway for them to touch hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of lives. Unbelievable how God turned bad to good. And the last one, service. How to use your pain for good. And again, those examples. They used their pain for good. And you read the stories of a lot of these individuals. It was not an automatic thing. You read the story of Johnny Erickson Tata, 17 years old, enjoying summer, dives at a lake and breaks her neck and is paralyzed from the neck down. She wanted to die. She wanted to be done. Somehow, she went through this process that took years, and then occasionally it comes back, and she uses her pain for good. This summer, there will be 
hundreds of sunshine camps meeting around our country where kids with disabilities are offered a Christ-centered camping experience no matter what their disability is, and it's free. And that happened because of Johnny Erickson Tata using her pain for good. And if I was to slow down and talk with some of you, you could probably tell me stories where you have used your pain for good. You see, this stage of grief is a process. This, this grief can be a good teacher. We don't run for, to it, uh, but we do, in a sense, look towards grief and see that it can be a good teacher. We look back, but don't be held captive by that past. We use that past experience, that past grief, to propel us forward. We don't hold on to the past. We don't hold on to, to it. We don't let it captivate us. We don't let that moment where things were good captivate us. You know, all of us probably have lines in our life where we can say, life was sweet now, life stinks now. Life was sweet. Life. We, we, we don't let the olden days hold us captive so we can't live in the future, can't live in the presence. And when I say these words, I acknowledge the process. All of us are in different places, and that's okay. You don't expect someone beginning the process to be at this place. But we need to understand the olden days weren't always so good. So at this moment, I thought we needed to take a little bit of a breath. So I wanted to just talk about something of the olden days. So, just remember, some of the olden days had things like this. That was the TV of the day. That's a VCR cartridge below it. Um, they also had something called this. This was a floppy disk. It was uh, just a terrible computer thing. It really was floppy, and then they got smaller and hard and, and all of that. Uh, there was a day where instead of using uh, video projectors, we had one of these kinds of things. And there was some kind of uh, magnet that would always cause your overhead thing to slide off right at the most important time. Um, there was also something that was called the cassette, that once cassettes weren't needed, we had this little plug thing, and we'd plug that into our MP3 player. Uh, there was also something called a flip phone. Some of you are still using them. Actually, my parents are still using one. And um, that was the good old days, not so good. And uh, then for kids, there were toys like this. Any of you have one of those? How many of you had one of those? You remember that? We had three of them for family trips. And we would just, you know, and then I wanted to find out what that water was like inside there. So that was the end of that toy. So, you know, what was in there? Probably some kind of tox, I don't know. But uh, it's, anyway. And then, you know, this is going to be very hurtful, but uh, I am so happy that I live in these days, not the olden days, because uh, that's when everybody had to ride horses. So anyway, I don't like that. So I'm happy God invented cars. And so when we're looking towards grief, we look back, but we don't be, we're not held by captive by the past. We don't long for the good old days. That is not wise. We also make sure that we look around and 
Don't expect fairness. There's no fairness on the planet. Yes, as, as Christ follows, we should try to be just, fair with people, but for us to expect fairness is, is to be unrealistic. And so when things are good, when things are sweet, we need, to, we need to enjoy them, but not expect it to remain like that all the time. That's the reason uh, Solomon says, enjoy prosperity, enjoy the good times while you can. But when hard times strike, realize that they both come from God. Remember, nothing is certain in this life. I've said this to you before, but there are times where the family's gathered around the table and there's no real good purpose. We just happen to be all there. And every once in a while it dawns on me, this is a special moment. This is a special moment. I started thinking about this when the girls were in high school and life would be crazy and finally dinner would be on the table and all kinds of craziness, homework, where you got to go and all this kind of stuff. And I would just kind of be in this zone and go, this is good. There are places on the planet where this isn't happening or where this can't happen or where everybody left in the morning and didn't realize that this would ever happen again. So look around, enjoy, enjoy the good times. He goes on to say in verse 15, I've seen everything in this meaningless life, including the death of good young people and the long life of wicked people. Doesn't make sense. It's not fair. We live in a broken world filled with brokenness. That's why Christ came back to help start restoring this world, one heart at a time. And someday, someday we actually believe, those of us as Christ follows, actually believe he will return and set everything right. And it won't just be heaven, it will be new heavens and a new earth because things are so messed up. And you say, why doesn't he do that today? Why doesn't he do that? Because if he did that today... There are people that would miss out on that blessing. That's why we're here as a church, to make a difference in people's lives, to point them to Christ. And the longer we're on the planet, the longer Christ holds back, the more opportunity for us to connect and point to him and let people know that there's this possibility that there's this personal God that wants a relationship with them. He's not going to force himself on them, but he wants a relationship. With, so it gives them more time and opportunity. And if there's anyone you know that has not said yes to Christ, you should be actually happy that Christ has not returned because that keeps the window open. And I'll just say this next stop. And when you're a Christ follower and you just want Christ to come back, you're thinking only of yourself. <laughs> you're not thinking of others who have not yet had the opportunity to say yes. So we look forward, but we don't become so preoccupied for an explanation. We've kind of touched on that when it comes to Rick Warren's stages of grief. We read in verse 25, I searched everywhere, determined to find wisdom and to understand the reason for things. I was determined to prove to myself that wickedness is stupid and that foolishness is madness. And jumping on, he says, Though I searched repeatedly, I have not found what I was looking for, not found an answer. 
and emotionally satisfying any answer. Only, this is very controversial, but he says it, only one out of a thousand men is vir virtuous, but not one woman. I read that the first week. But you also have to remember, Solomon did write Proverbs 31, didn't he? The virtuous woman. So he's exaggerating here. But I did find this. God created people to be virtuous, but they have each turned their, to follow their own downward path. And then going back to verse 13, which gives us a little bit again more of some closure, if you can call it that. He says this. Accept the way God does things. For who can straighten what he has made crooked? You see, he just kind of got to roll with it. We live on this broken planet where he's giving room for people to turn to him. And in the meanwhile, we have to live in the wake of other people's actions. And other people have to live in the wake of our actions. It works both ways. Very familiar passage when it talks about trouble and trials is found in James. Uh, James writes this, and we can apply this to grief. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, that you can be a mature Christ follower. We enjoy the fact that our kids are growing up. They're getting on their own. It's nice to watch them be mature and complete. They're still on our insurance policy, one step away from being mature and complete. But after that, they are complete. But it's a delight. God loves watching the same thing happen. And you and I know, without resistance, without pressure, maturity and completeness doesn't seem to happen. Not lacking anything. If anyone lacks wisdom, what I love this is when you don't understand, talk to the Father. Talk to God. Doesn't mean he's going to give you this, but he will give you that peace that transcends understanding. It's not instant. Sometimes it is. It's not a special formula. But you will find as you look towards him, he will give you wisdom. And that wisdom may be, I just don't get this. And I love who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. I love the fact that he speaks to us. I love the fact that he doesn't find fault when we look to him and lean to him. Now, some of you are familiar with this story. I think Cindy has uh, shared it in some of the women's groups she's worked with, Women to Women, about Laura Story and her husband, Martin Elvington. And they've often told people that their marriage went from honeymoon straight to the ER. And what they said, barely into two years into their life together, they thought their world was open to them. They could do anything they wanted to, and they were happily anticipating all that God may have in store for them. Within a few months of a big move to Atlanta for Martin to attend grad school, he began experiencing physical symptoms that went undiagnosed for nearly a year. Martin would fall asleep in class or be a little forgetful sometimes. At first, he dismissed it all as studying too hard. 
But when the symptoms persisted, Laura and Martin went in for tests and were told that Martin had a brain tumor. We felt like we had just picked our china out as newlyweds, and there we were sitting with a neurosurgeon and listening to him explain the risks associated with the complicated surgery Martin needed to survive. He faced the possibility of complete amnesia or even death. Martin survived, but he and Laura have discovered what it means to live according to God's grace. After several years of some of his disabilities not improving, they have come to determine with the reality that their challenges weren't a detour, but the road itself. You see, grief can be the road itself. And some of you know that. Some of you are experiencing that. You see, they discovered that grief can be life's best teacher when they're willing to learn from it. Now, I just read a few paragraphs that made it nice and tidy. It was not nice and tidy. What they said took months, years, to be able to put into words the way they said it. Also, out of their experience, Laura has written a song, and you're familiar with it, some of you, and she and Martin have also written a book that's entitled When God Doesn't Fix It. The song she wrote is called Blessings. It goes this way. We pray for blessings, we pray for peace, comfort for family, protection while we sleep. We pray for healing, we pray for your mighty hand to ease our suffering, and all the while you hear each spoken need. Yet love is way too much to give us lesser things. Because what if your blessings come through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? What if trials, or we would say griefs of life, are your mercies in disguise? The psalmist David writes these words. This was King Solomon's dad. And he writes these words this way. He says, I remain confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. And if you know the story of David, you know those words are filled with meaning and substance and genuineness. Those are not just nice words. So grief can be life's best teacher if we become, and I use that word become purposefully, it's not automatic, but if we become willing to learn from it. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, lots of images are flooding our mind in this moment. Heavy images, hurtful images, tragedy, grief. And all of us are looking at them with a different level of intensity and a different level of pain, different level of questioning, different level of anger. And Father, I ask that you would step in 
to wherever each one of us finds ourselves and would begin the process. A process that for some of us might take a month, some of us it might take years, some of us may find that this is the new road that defines our existence, but it can be a road that makes a difference in others. Some of us aren't even willing to, ready to hear that, and that's okay. Wherever we're at, may we find that you are our Savior. You can be our Lord. You can be the shepherds of our soul, of our hearts, of our grief. And then in some way, over time, grief might not be our fondest teacher like we think about those elementary school teachers, but that grief can become one of our best teachers. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.